You are now tuning in to the Own the Build podcast. Join Sealing's very own Paul Hemming, where each week he interviews experts from the world of construction and asks all the important questions around intelligent construction management. Hello and welcome to episode 119 of the Own the Build podcast with me, Paul Hemming. As the last few months uh, we're continuing our free download giveaway and in the links of the podcast description you'll find boq template vesting certificate template and what more could you really want in your life than those two things so thanks to everyone who's reached out to me and said uh, about the other templates that's great feel free to give me a shout i'm on paul at c link.com that's c link.com give me a shout in the studio today i am joined by an illustrious figure. I'm joined by Joseph Ewing, who is a, who is head coach at The Contract Coach, who are a business that advise construction businesses that wish to work differently and avoid disputes before they happen. Joseph has a wealth of experience. I'm going to get tired reading this out, but bear with me. He is an expert witness, a mediator, an adjudication party representative, and is a fellow of the Institute of Construction Claims Practitioners, among many other things. I'm going to have to have a lie down right now, Joseph, so I don't know how you're feeling about life. You've been busy, and I do love the job title, head coach. Anyway, welcome to the show, mate. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you, Paul, for having me. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine, mate. So... I've just tried to give in 20 seconds a summary of you and what you do in the industry. You're going to do a far better job. Ground our conversation today in an explanation about you, your experience, and your journey in construction. Okay. uh, Yeah, I've been in construction for 32 years now, Uh, 16 years of that as a contractor to board level uh, in civil engineering. So I was a specialist contractor. And then in 2005, uh, my father's company, sadly, was forced into liquidation uh, due to non-payment of significant seven-figure sums of money. At that point in time, kind of, well, the bottom fell out of my world a little bit, to be honest. Um, But what I decided at that point was that the industry was amazing. I loved it. We make great changes in the built environment. But unfortunately, for whatever reason, we can't seem to build relationships. You know, I, I talk about this extensively on LinkedIn. However cheesy it may sound it is actually true you know why can't we work together uh why, why can't we collaborate um so i, I decided back in 2005 sorry back in 2006 because I, I had a I set up a business with my, my brother for some time to help out the guys who had lost their jobs we, we ran out for six months and then i decided to go off because i know honestly i decided i wanted to change the industry from the inside out taking me a hell of a long time to work out how to just even say that <laughs> never never mind actually do it so there's a lot going on behind the scenes but um from about 2006 i started advising companies on better ways to, to do their projects better ways to to contract um and and then I, I got into adjudication quite early on and i've been doing that ever since uh for specialist contractors effect- effectively uh chasing um, just entitlement to, to sums of money, um, extensions of time, and issues such as that. Hard job that is, isn't it? That was my job in the past as well. Yeah. Oh, uh, you, so... cost me my hair. <laughs> <laughs> Mine's on the blink as well, mate. So, um, <laughs> so, so, talk to me about your dad's company then. 
Am I right in understanding that your dad's company was a subcontractor? Yeah, it was a specialist contractor. I know this is me being pedantic, but I, I don't actually like the term subcontractor. Um, I know I we get use told it this all the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, I mean, we talk about it, or I, I have spoke about. It, I spoke on another podcast, as I think you mentioned, you're aware as well. And um, you know, sub to me suggests that somebody is lesser than. And, and, and I understand, you know, the contract is, is technically lower in, in the supply chain. But for me, the supply chain shouldn't be vertical. It should be horizontal uh, because everybody should be a stakeholder in a project. Everybody should have an equal opportunity to, to expose themselves to risk, but for that reward. I completely agree with you, Yosef. And in episode 102, I was told off multiple times by, a, uh, by Angela Mansell, who is... Um, MD, a specialist contractor. She told me I'm a I'm a specialist contractor by qualification. I don't know why it's stuck in my head. Subcontractor, because specialist contractor is a much more apt term, isn't it? Well, it is. But the thing is, I mean, I, I, I even in that podcast, I slipped into the vernacular calling it a subcontractor, calling them sorry, a subcontractor, too, because that's kind of well, it's difficult after about three or four hundred years of being called that to not have that uh, uh, title. But I think the more that we we, we get people to change. The way they talk about contractors, because essentially they're all contractors doing a job. So, specialist for me is actually the industry champion, if like, because at the end of the day, main contractors are almost turning into management consultants. You know, they don't do a hell of a lot for what they do, uh, in my opinion, because they don't do nearly enough due diligence. You know, this, this just kind of lazy approach of you must sign our contract, you must do these things. It's, it's nonsense, and that's that's what's going to be constant. Sorry, that's what will be the constant until we, we start changing it, which is what I'm trying to do, yeah. And your background is you're a QS. So I'm, no, actually, my my original start in the, the construction industry when I was 16 years old, goodness me, and I think it was about 89, 90, I think it was from memory, there or thereabouts. Uh, I started off as actually a site engineer. So it was in construction sites up in Perth and, you know, throughout eastern central Scotland. And my job was to set out, you know, the fancy title now is geospatial engineer uh, yeah, yeah. We, were, we were site engineers you know hammering hammering pegs in for the, the corners of foundations and and then the nails for the bricklayers so you forth. then moved into uh, like i was looking at your career you know you then ended up as a commercial director like you moved into the commercial side yeah so so from a very early start when so i worked for wimpy uh, george wimpy I remember the, the, that's when they had the cat uh many many 32 years ago jesus um so we used to have, we were almost called like bonus surveyors. So you had quantity of surveyors on the site. And yeah, I'm going to say, we just used to think they were really lazy because uh, we had to do all the work. Uh, we're, we're great, mate. Well, yeah, yeah. To be honest, well, that's if you could spell it. Um, but anyway, <laughs> so so the thing was, we we used to have to do the measurement, if you like, element, because we were the engineers. So we, we had all the, the, the equipment. So we would do the measurements. But then uh, we effectively then became responsible for what we call um, paying the bonus or, or, or allocating the bonus for the, the site operators. So we would effectively kind of go around, measure all the work and then and then tick it off. So that was kind of how I got moved into the sort of commercial side. And then in 93, my, my dad was a, a foreman, general foreman, sorry. And he, well, was a, there was a recession and Wimpy basically, basically went from one minute they were, you're a general foreman to, listen, if you want to continue to work, you now need to have a company these guys will work for you. And they pretty much showed them how to set up there and then. And he, he, he became a, a, a company director overnight, pretty much. And from there, from there, I then went in to work for him in 93. And then I, I worked with him all the way through. So I effectively worked all the way up, you know. 
Yeah, no, that's that's it's it's an interesting journey. And what so at the heart of what you do today with the business, the contract coach, you talk about coaching specialist contractors, main contractors on how to better contract as a um, kind of like a thesis, right? Just going back to the reason for setting up that business, and maybe I'm wrong here, but you talked about your dad's business being a business that you were obviously emotionally attached to, and then you talked about kind of seven-figure payment not being made, and you know I'm guessing feeling pretty wronged by that whole outcome. Is that why you now do what you do? In a nutshell, yeah. Um, <clears throat> it goes deeper than that for me because I, I, I grew up in care, when I talk about my dad, he was actually my foster dad. So he took me out of a children's home in 1979 and gave me a home. So for me, watching that in 2005 unfold was quite honestly heartbreaking. Brutal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I couldn't understand why people would do that because we went from these people being what we thought were friends and allies to basically, you know, everything we did was, was shit, basically. And you thought, oh, hang on a minute. We went from winning awards to from for you guys to being anathema how does that how does that work and i i couldn't reconcile it in my head because you know recently i've, I've been getting coached myself and i discovered that my, my number one balance and sorry my number one value i beg your pardon in life is balance um and that, that's what drives me is to create balance in this industry then we need to have parity between specialists and main contractors being it together instead of being so adversarial 100 percent. and you talked earlier as well i'm not getting to it. we're going around the round and around here but this is good you talked earlier another thing that you said was i don't understand why we can't collaborate which is kind of at the heart of what you've just said as well why do you think we as an industry cannot collaborate it's because it's very much a them and us culture and it's, it's so ingrained right through to you know the almost through to the, the, the core of, of the industry and it has been for so many years and it's, it's you know difficult to change people's minds and the truth is you know going back to when I started up I failed a number of times myself in business because I was trying to change people's minds when I realized that the only way to change it is to change the entire industry which is what I'm trying to do now and it's, it's a huge undertaking and I've got a lot of systems and things as I talk, talk to you offline about coming coming in the future but uh, to me the missing link was education and I thought, well, if we can't uh, get main and subcontractors, sorry, I did it myself there. If we can't get main and specialist contractors to collaborate effectively, then the only way to do it is we upskill the, the contractors to understand why they have to do that and why it's in their interest to do that. And it's only when you do that, then you'll get you, you'll foment change, positive change, that is. And so um, I'll repeat kind of what I've read about you and your business. So the contract coach as a business talks about coaching specialists contractors got it right that time and main contractors on how to in inverted commas better contract what do you what do you specifically mean by that so to better contract is, is to, to understand that a contract is not you will you will do this you will not do that you will not do this you will not do that and that's very much what it is it's written by one side of a comp of a, of a, of a bargain if you like or, or an agreement on the basis that it protects only that one side and that's just stupid. The reason I'm saying it's stupid is because there's two parties to a contract. Both companies expose themselves to risk and opportunity to make money and about well, revenue, sorry, and then profit. So if a contract's only written in the interest of one party, there's always going to be a dispute culture. So when we say contract better, we it's, it's effectively to get people to have that discussion at the start before they sign the contract, so that when the contract's signed, both parties fully understand the risks fully understand how to manage the risks 
and then they can go off and build whatever it is they want to build. And when you when you go to a new client and they come to you and say, "Oh, I don't understand how to contract," what, oh, probably this is I'm barking up the wrong tree here. But like, what are the things that you see most often that people don't understand? Uh, okay, so so the, the terms for for is, is probably a bit clearly for me stating the obvious is the terms in the contract. The vast majority of of specialist contractors are specialist in a, a trade. You know, I mean, that'd be plumbing, civil engineering, for example, like myself, or electricians. It doesn't matter what the trade is, but it's, that's what they do. They're not they're not specialist in contracts or contract terms. They don't understand. And let's face it, a lot of them are written in so much legalese speak. You know, it's, it's designed, I believe, to confound people. Um, you know, there's, there's a girl on uh, LinkedIn, Sarah Fox, who's always talked about, you know, 500 words uh, or less for a contract. And it's, it's an amazing... She's on the show in a couple of weeks. <laughs> oh, is she? Is she? Yeah, I know quite well, well, yeah. Yeah, she's great. And, and, and I agree with what she's saying as well. But like, so, for example, a, a company recently and were asked to, to price a project and they went on site. And this is one of the other things that companies don't understand is, so sorry, I'll, I'll reverse that. So they, they, they'll price a job, but they price the job without the contract. So they're actually, the main contractor will actually withhold the contract terms, which explains how they have to price it. They then get a price. I mean, it's, it's completely bonkers. Yeah. And they'll get the price. They'll wait till the, the, the hapless no, specialist guy is the contract. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You have to sign this. And, and the one I, I spoke about recently as well is if you don't sign it, we won't pay you. And you think, well, well, that's a breach of the Construction Act for the start. Another thing that the construction specialist contractor, sorry, they don't understand either is the fact that they actually they actually have rights under law that are enacted back into uh, well, it's ninety six, but it became law in ninety eight. It was then upgraded in two thousand nine, became law two thousand eleven. The Construction Act is there to protect you. It does two things: tells you how to get paid, and it gives you a remedy called adjudication if you don't get paid. And it's pretty straightforward. But the vast majority of companies I've come across don't understand that. So that's part of the coaching is to get them to understand their rights so that they can assert those rights confidently in a negotiation. Yeah, 100%. I mean, yeah, the act is there in many ways, isn't it, to protect the supply chain. It was it was kind of brought in so that cash could flow among among many other things. Obviously, it brought in adjudication as well. I and mean, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today is adjudication. And I wanted to talk to you today about keeping records now you're someone who has been an adjudication party representative you're someone who passionately cares about records right oh, yeah sorry to give you that tag but i'm actually with you i'm a big i care a lot about records or i cared a lot about records when i was part of a project team it's essential what is your experience with subcontractors when it comes to keeping records oh in a word horrific um, <laughs> And that, that's not that's not to be, you know, he says after the fact. That's not to be too derogatory. Uh, it's it's just it's just a statement of fact. And again, it goes back to what I said before. They're not specialists in doing that. You know that they, they know how to, to to wire a house. They know how to to dig a foundation. They don't know how to keep you know these records. So the part of the coaching is actually to show them the systems and processes they need in place to keep those records, so that if they ever do get into a situation, and they will, I have to be perfectly blatantly honest and say that the vast majority of main contractors are going to come up against we're not paying you prove it and if you can't prove it you don't get paid so so if you start with the contract first so we'll talk about the coaching side so if uh, we, we talk about so my framework for example in, in the coaching is contract strategy and maintenance 
So the contract is, is essentially, and I'm going to use a building as an analogy, so contracts are the foundations for a contractor, the clue's in the name, for a contractor to make revenue and generate profit, they need the contracts, they need to be solid. If they're not solid, the, the building's going to sink, as simple as that. So then once you've got the foundations in place, you then have the, the, the roof. I was almost, I almost had to think about my building. I know, yeah, I'm enjoying What comes it. after the foundations? <laughs> so yeah, so we get to the floor, yeah, so you've got walls, you know, obviously in a roof. That's wind and watertight, as we, as we use in the, you know, the parlance in the industry. If it's wind and watertight, like, like your business is rather, so using the analogy, your, your business is wind and watertight, it means it has the processes in place to put tenders together, to put applications together, put change control, and to keep the records that you need to support these, such as timesheets, uh, labor sheets, plant allocation, material records, all these things are relevant because you need them in an adjudication to prove to the adjudicator that you're entitled to money. It's really that simple. And as part yeah. of your, because I think I, I want to maybe in the second half of the show delve into your perception of what records are, how they should be kept, etc. But are you almost, because you've spent a lot of time doing adjudications or being involved in adjudications, is your experience of adjudications, this might sound, this might not be what you're setting them up for, but do you set up your specialists to understand the contract, use the contract, create records, et cetera, so that they would win at an adjudication, hoping, hoping that they wouldn't get there. But having been to so many or seen so many, you know what it takes to win and be in the right frame. So is that almost what you're coaching contractually? Not almost. That's exactly what we're, we're coaching them for because the reality is that is a risk. So I also use the analogy of if your profit was a human being. So I think about a human being in construction with the CDM regulations, HSE, everybody, you know, uh, is very, very great at saying, you know, this is what we do. Uh, RAMS, you know, risk assessment, method statement. So in essence, what I'm trying to create is a risk assessment method statement for for your profit. Yeah, yeah. To say, well, if you if you have the risk that you may not make profit or indeed revenue on in that project, what what procedures have you got in place to, to deal with that? The vast majority of companies I work with, and that means most of the industry that I deal with, Zero. don't have these basic <laughs> yeah, things yeah. in place. Yeah. And then, and then, but then at the same time, they'll, they'll have the issues coming along and saying, well, we've got a problem. You go, well, well I need to see what the records and, and you, you go, well, you don't have any. You know, then it becomes much more difficult, which means then much more expensive to recover the sums. Yeah, no, that that makes perfect sense. And after the um, after the break, well, I, I, it's almost how to win an adjudication, isn't it? But mm -hmm. let's talk more. By avoiding it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So let's talk more about that right after the break. Hello, it's me again. I wanted to share a quick story with you on why I co-founded Sealink with my best mate, Chris. Chris and I, we're both QSs, and this is going to sound sad, but one night we were sat in the pub talking about subcontract tendering and we realized the industry had a problem. Number one, procurement was too paper-based. Number two, it was too time-consuming and every QS had their own unique way of doing things. And number three, perhaps most importantly, if you want to competitively tender, you need to know hundreds of the best subcontractors. We simply didn't. That's why we created C-Link. It's software to solve subcontract tendering. We wanted to remove these challenges and help the industry get better. So if you or someone you know tenders with subcontractors, you've got to see our software. Head over to our link, www.get.c-link.com forward slash podcast to find out more. 
I will include it in the description box. So again, there's no excuses. Now, let's get right back to the show. How to win an adjudication with Joseph Ewing. That might be the new name of, of this. You know, quite often I'm having these conversations and it takes me back a decade to where I was in my head as a commercial manager, you know, managing these big projects. And the way I always used to look at it, Joseph, was with records in particular, was that I was one of 20 subbies on, on a site. I was desperate to have amazing records so that, you, it wasn't always possible, but you've got to drill it into the team, site team, QS team, whoever, that when it comes down to the final account or any of these commercial meetings, right, when you are sat there, you'd almost be surrounded by files of great records with the idea being that the main contractor would kind of look at you and go, yeah, maybe we won't pick a fight with them. We'll go and pick a fight with a guy over there who hasn't sent us an email ever about anything, right? I'm not saying that's right or that's how the industry works, but that was definitely my aggressive, you know, subcontractor mentality of that's how I had to protect myself. What I want to understand from you today is what record keeping is to you specifically and how you coach it. Yeah, so so a lot of people when like I said when you're talking about record keeping it it starts from when you start the project. So so once you've agreed the contract, we'll go on a site and you'll think about like timesheets, as in like labor returns, all that, those kind of things, plan, material deliveries, weather measurements, um, you know, th- these are all the kind of sort of traditional things. Where I come from comes right back to the very, very start when somebody knocks on your door and says, He's specialist, give me a price. That's when the records really start and need to sorry, start being kept from the moment somebody comes from invitation to tender. So I talk about kind of phases um, or stages, if you like, where you have an invitation to tender, you sign a contract, you deliver, and then you, you end. Those are the three kind of uh, areas that, 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 that matter. So from the moment you ask to tender uh, or, or produce a price to do some work, that's when you can start keeping records, all the emails, um, all the discussions about what you plan to do, the records of how you you, you arrived at the price, um, resources and so forth, materials, all that kind of stuff. Keep all those records. So once you've got to the point where you're agreeing the terms, as in the contract terms, then keep all the records and the discussions up until that point, all the emails, everything like that has to be kept too. Then the agreement, and, and, and I see this a lot where I, I'm asked to, uh, look at a difficult situation, or a, a distressed situation for a company, and and where we initially look is where's your contract, and a lot of the time the, the people are scrambling about looking for. <laughs> yes, it's almost it's not it's not uh, like a foreign word. It's actually it means it means something, you know. So the contract, uh, and a lot of the time, you know, sometimes it takes you know a few days to pull all the information together, and you're thinking that's ridiculous. You should have that information. Like you're that. already starting to think this could be a troublesome case. Yeah, that's it, and you're thinking. You know, in the old days, we used to see contracts used to, to, to keep the site hut door open, you know, on a, on a sunny day. And you think, well, what's that doing? No, that's a contract. You know, well, well, sunny I, day in Scotland, mate. Now I know you're having me on. I don't, well, it's, it's usually June the 5th, but next this year it's probably June June the 7th. I love that. It's my favourite day of the year <laughs> to get the barbecue. No, but but the, the, the point is, so, so the, the contract is, is a really, really important document, obviously. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of seeing something quite obvious, but to me it's obvious, but to a lot of people in the industry it's not. You know, they sign the contract and they hide it away in a, a, a bottom drawer like it's some kind of dirty little secret. And you think, it's not. 
you know that that's the document that tells you how this works. You need to know how it works. You need but to it know tells how you how your client wants you to work. That's right? it. That's it. Because the other the flip side of that is companies who are slightly more savvy who do put in you know good documentation and stuff to the to the the main contractor are accused then of being too contractual. And that, that just literally cracks me up. I wrote an article many years ago about that. Don't be so contractual. And I'm like, the clue's in the name. Pardon my friends there, sorry. The clue is in the name. Contract, contractor. So if somebody's asking you to sign a contract and asking you to follow that contract and then says they've got a problem with you following that contract, that's a red flag, you know? What do you do? What do you do, Joseph? So I've, I've heard that quite a lot. We actually did an episode really recently about the phrase, you are being too contractual. Good. Talk to me about, I'm going to be the main contractor for a minute. You could be the subcontractor. You submit some notices to me. I say, look, you've been a bit contractual here. Can you give it a rest? What's your response? All I'm doing is following the document you asked me to follow. Why do you have a problem with that? <laughs> yeah, see, I'm not very good at being a main contractor because... <laughs> yeah. Precisely. Just look a bit more arrogant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't say that. Don't say that. <laughs> we love you, really. The thing is, actually, on a genuine point, because this would be quite good for me to say this, because I think a lot of main contractors out there think I don't like them. It's not that I don't like them. I don't like the practices. I don't like what's been going on in the industry for too long. At the end of the day, just, just be kind. <laughs> it's, it's not difficult, you know? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, yeah, we're being a bit facetious, aren't we? And obviously... Yeah, well, it's Friday. Yeah, it's, yeah. business business practices from company to company can, can vary a lot. But that's that was exactly my response if someone said, be, are you being contractual? You think, well, I'm not. I'm doing exactly what you've asked me to do, so I'm trying my best. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy, is it? And question for you as someone who comes into a project, or not even a project, like a case, in inverted commas, where... It could be a client and a main contractor. It could be a main contractor and a subcontractor, whatever it is. We're going into an adjudication and you are completely independent of the project. You haven't been involved. You're emotionally detached from the job. You get flown in by a client. What do you need to understand? What do you need to see to understand who is on the right side of the argument and what is often missing from that? Yeah, okay. So so I actually have like a, what I call a crib sheet that's... Um what I initially need from any client before we, we start doing the process. So the process I call is, is very much aligned with what you know lawyers in court would do. I call it you know, discovery. And what I mean by that is, is looking at the records. Um, so what I need is a contract. Specifically, I need the contract. I need copies of applications for payment, any payment notices, any PLS notices, any documents that support any applications, which are essentially the vouching. You know, like you might have invoices or timesheets that we spoke about, all that kind of stuff. Anything that, that, that supports your claim and then the correspondence, <clears throat> that's where things can get quite difficult and become quite expensive because there's usually voluminous terabytes of emails that we have to go through. And that's where you know it's, it's, it's difficult to try and find out who, who's who's right and who's wrong. But once you get all this, all this information together, you can then go through it all and then work out, does my client have a reasonable chance of success in adjudication? And at that point, that's when we decide. What's usually missing, though? Is there something usually missing? Or is it the that they usually say, here's 10,000 emails, sift through them, as opposed to, here's 10,000 emails, these are the 300 that are relevant. Like, what is it that frustrates you? Yeah, okay, so what's usually missing is things like uh, timesheets, record sheets, programs, very often or not. A lot of times, I'm looking at one just now, in, a, in an adjudication where the subcontractor has asked repeatedly to provide a, a contract 
uh, program failed to do it throughout the project and now trying to make a claim and you think well how can you make a claim when you know you've not actually got any evidence you literally can't prove that you you were delayed because you didn't keep programmed so it's things like that contract documents sometimes are missing you know, they don't actually know what they signed up to there's actually been situations where i've had to ask the company we're just about to adjudicate against can you give me a copy of the contract please you know it's absurd but i, ha I have to do it because we, we don't know how to start the adjudication it's, it's, it's crazy that is remarkable i mean that is truly remarkable you talk about it being the foundation in your analogy of the project of the business of your success it is remarkable how many times you find that case I, i've i've seen that many a time even in companies that you've that you know you'd go well, you've got the contract they go what i haven't no i don't i can maybe let me try and find it and then like you say two three four days pass by and something turns up and it's half of what you're expecting in terms of what a normal contract document would be so what you're kind of saying is what you need to have is structure to the way that you contract right so number one first and foremost you've got to have your contract in place you've then got to have all of your all your relevant documents like your notice to commence applications payment notices all your variations and you need to have it logged and uh, some people will be listening to this and go yeah obviously but they, they don't do it yeah it's yeah. it is as simple as that you've got to think I, I i'm a firm believer in this right i never ended up going to an adjudication it was thrown around on projects that i was on and it was it came close but i always felt that if you make yourself a company that people do, wouldn't want to adjudicate against and that, that's not by being this really aggressive i don't know what people people's perceptions would have been i don't think i was a really aggressive i just thought i was doing i'd always try and do it by the book this is what it says i'm going to do this i'm going to do this and i'm going to do it meticulously and habitually build it into the habit of the project team that i'm on which means that then you know again going back to that example of looking at two companies and they say right which one is the one that we're going to go after they're not going to go after the one who's got their ducks in a row or that discovery to hand right a hundred percent because that, that's one of the things that we we offer you know through the coaching services but because if if you and again it's right back to the start it's not just this is before the record start so right back to the start when somebody knocks on your door you, you put out a, a, what i call it the onboarding process and you say well we need to we need the contract documents we need this if you show that you're commercially astute right from the outset the chances are when you get further down the line they're going to respect you a bit more you know like you say if, if somebody comes like you said i think your example was if the person that hasn't sent an email for the whole project suddenly comes along and you know and, and, and you you rock in you know like paul comes in with all, all these documentation you've got all the records and then you know again it's a bit of psychology in there you know that if if, if somebody looks like they're difficult to over turnover you know for for for, for a payment because that's which is what we're talking about here is people yeah i'm not going to pay that guy but i'm going to pay this guy if you look like you're, you're going to be a, a, a tough sweetie as we say in scotland to, to swallow um a tough a tough sweetie yeah, to swallow or a nippy sweetie a nippy sweetie then the chances are i've not heard that before i'm gonna roll with that one yeah you're a nippy sweetie and the thing is it's not been kind of like they say it's not adversarial things it's, it's you follow the contract to the letter you know, and, and it's almost seen like uh, it's, it's like you're doing something wrong. Main contractors, quantity surveyors, effectively will say, oh, you've been too contractual, all this kind of stuff. You think, well, I'm not, I'm doing my job. You know, I so I want to press you on one thing, though, because go for it. we talked about at the top of the show, it was why can't we collaborate? Why can't we collaborate? And I've, I've talked about it a bit here, you know, that I would be sat in, I'm, I want to go into that meeting room and say, I'm not a subcontractor that you're going to mess with, right? Main contractor. You, you, we've been joking and teasing about main contractors 
on on this, right? That's not how I feel genuinely, but that's how I did feel as a subcontractor. So going to the heart of, you know, you're talking about why can't we as an industry, why maybe don't tell us the wrong way, but it feels like you struggled to collaborate with mega tractors because you've had some bad experiences going back to like your your dad's company, etc. How do you feel about how you can collaborate? Or is it always, do you always feel like you're up against it and fight, 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 because a lot of the work that you do is around, you know, adjudication and stuff? Yeah, I, I might come across like that online and, and obviously up to this point in this podcast. But the tr- truth of the matter is I don't have anything against main contractors. Indeed, a lot of the main contractors that I actually advise, because I do advise main contractors too, believe it or not, are, are actually companies who, not always, always the case, but on, on many a case, they're actually companies who I couldn't, uh, disputed against they then employed me off the back of it. Really? Because, yeah, because the, they like my approach. Because I, I, as much as I talk about, you know, adversarial stuff, and, you know, people will probably see me on LinkedIn, I like to have a joke and a laugh. And I know, you know, there's a serious subject. But but well, the thing is, the reason I have a joke and a laugh is a counterpoint to the toxicity in the industry. So, so you know, I, I don't hate anything, to be honest. I don't, you know, I hate, well, well, that's not true. I hate what people do. I don't hate the people, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that's a distinction that's often lost, especially in disputes. And, and in the arena of adjudication, you know, I see stuff. Even recently, I was in an adjudication last year where I saw some dirty tricks uh, and actually directed towards me. And I'm thinking, I'm not actually on trial here. Why are you attacking me? And I'm, I'm attacking the evidence by all means, but what, what are you pointing the finger at me for? It's going to do with me. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm just doing my job. So uh, there's people in, in the industry that are like that, unfortunately. Um, but in terms of the collaboration, I have no qualms in, in coaching main contractors if they were interested. But the fact is, I've never had a single inquiry yet from the masking. It's, it, I guess the reason why I was asking, right, is, you know, we talked at the top of the show about that collaboration and, you know, both, it sounds like we've had similar-ish kind of experience, you know, we've both being specialists, et cetera. Um, and we're both coming from a similar background. So I was, I was wondering, you know, or, or reflecting as we were talking then, you know, if you were a main contractor listener, which there will be, probably listen to that thing. Yeah, but hang on a minute. All of a sudden, you're 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 saying you're not collaborating, or it sounds like you're not collaborating. And I, I was thinking about that and thinking about what we were both saying. And I, I don't think that's what we are saying, but perhaps that's because you know the bottom end of it, which the specialist is, it does feel like you can try and collaborate, but when it comes down to the money, a lot of the times you're going to have to fight it out. Yeah, I think I think let's let's look at the word collaborate because collaborate you need two sides to collaborate. The problem is we only have one side trying to collaborate, and that's where the that's the problem. So See, I think I think that a main main contractors listening would say that's not fair. I'm trying to collaborate. Like quite a lot of them would say that they are trying to collaborate and would think that that's us being biased. Yeah, well to answer that then I would say well we'll, we'll stop these practices. The practices, for example, that I mentioned earlier in the show, where you said you know wait till a guy's on site. And, and, I, and I'm talking about an example where we, I was advising the company, the specialist contractor asked repeatedly for a copy of the contract terms, was not given them by a tier, I think, I'm not sure if they're tier one or tier two, but, but, but a pretty big contractor, waited till they're on site and then hit them with something like says, you know, sign this. And, and I'm talk, not talking about a contract that was 20 pages. I'm talking about seven or 800 pages. No, I see it happen all and, the time, uh, don't you? Yeah. Well, I said, but they said, if you don't sign that, we won't pay you. These are the kind, that's not collaborative. So, 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 don't get me wrong. That not every, and, I, and I've said this a few times. Not everybody, and not particularly, not every main contractor, because there are good main contractors out there. And like, and like I say, I, I advise a number of them, and they, they do want to be fair and reasonable. And um, just like, and I, I would like to say, just for the sake of balance, conversely, there's some specialist contractors who've asked me to represent, 
And I've said no because your claim's not legitimate. And I'm legitimate, sorry. And I'm I'm not going to get involved in that. Uh, and that's the reality of life. So so it's not it's, it's not a blanket. Every single specialist is is holier than thou, and every main contractor is 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 uh, you know Fagan, you know, in, in the in all over twist. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not like that. It's not like that. Please, sir, can I have some more? It's not. It's, the, the fact of the matter is, the vast majority of main contractors that I've come across in thirty two years have been bullies. That's the reality. I, I think that the the culture is there, isn't it? And in I was I was speaking to someone today, and they shared me a, a subcontractor, specialist contractor, and they shared with me a just summary of conversations that they had during a tender phase with a tier one, and that tier one main contractor, you know, I forget the dates being correct. On the first of January, said, "Please have a quote. Please have a quote. Please have a quote." Second of January, like really pushed for the quote. Twentieth of January, received the tender, then flipped it, where the specialist is then saying. Any thoughts on our quote? Can we have a mid-tender meeting? Can we talk about our quote? And it went through a series of like 10 different chases where over the course of 40, 45 days, zero response, followed by on day 45, oh, we've awarded this to someone else you're too expensive, sorry. And it's that level of interaction and collaboration which so often subcontractors go through in their day-to-day, specialist contractors go through in their day-to-day running of a business that, I guess maybe gives you this complex or gives you this thinking that, you know, it is a bit more, there isn't that level of collaboration there, right? Yeah. Uh, Cause one of the other things that we uh, offer as part of the coaching is to get companies to understand what their value proposition is as well, as well as the values that they stand for. So, so a specialist contractor, when they actually understand what the value proposition is, and when somebody comes to the door and knocks on it and asks for some pricing, they're, they're better positioned and more confident as well about saying, well, this is how we work, not we will work to your tune. We say, well, we're the specialist. We know what we're doing. You want our services. This is how we work. Uh, I'll give an example. A client um, was forever having companies ask them for to do some design work, getting the design work free, and then giving it to the competitor to get a price. And they were complaining about it. I said, well, we'll stop doing that for a start. What to do is say, we, we, we'll create a separate quote if you want us to do some design work on spec then we'll charge you a few thousand pounds or whatever it may be you know depending on the complexity um and if you're interested in it then we can give you a price to deliver that design and then, and then once you put that change into the business it was it was a completely step change Dynamic changes yeah. Yeah. yeah it's just simple things like that you know yeah yeah 100 percent. i mean it's funny isn't it because you know we came here to talk about records 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 you we've almost ended up talking about something completely different but it all comes back to probably what you were saying at the start about why can't we just get on and like records 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 super important it should just be part of your business process get it done your your contract tells you to do it do it and and maintain it but why can't we just get on and i'm still i have to say at a bit of a loss honestly from my own experience from this conversation as to what that reason is my final question to you is what why why do you think that is and what would you do about it oh well well, I think I touched on it before. The, the reality is main contractors have practices that, that they shouldn't have and they, they they don't go into, not generally, the vast majority of the ones that I see, they approach contracting in a way that's just in their interests and they forget that the other person coming to the table also has interests and needs too. And if, if they continue to do that, then there's never going to be change. Mm. And do you think, do you think that... The- the margins are, you know, margins are so bad for main contractors that 
they've almost had to go down this path. Well, yeah, I've heard that argument a number of times, and, and, and it's true, you know, the suicidal or razor-thin margins, the tier ones go in it sometimes, and they make it back from the supply chain. That does happen, um, but the, the, to, to say that they, they're, they're forced to go down this route, I disagree with that wholeheartedly because they're not forced to do it. It's a choice. They could turn around to the employer and say, I'm not doing it for that price, just the same as a specialist contractor cannot do it for that price. The fact of the matter is that the employer at the top of the tree has to has to, to be able to, to be told that they can't do it for that price at that point in time. And maybe then, you know, we would see some change. But to my mind, and again, you know, I, I've worked in specialist contracts for so many years that I, I'm in this area, it's in my space, if you like. But, you know, if I was to go and advise clients, I would say the same thing, you know, that, that everything has a value and a price and you've got to pay a reasonable price for it. If you're not prepared to pay it, you're going to get really rubbish results. And that means you're going to get main contractors abusing the supply chain. Yeah, which doesn't work for anyone. So, yes, if we've come to the end of the show, there is food for thought in this one, I think. I mean, number one is, I think the takeaway is records, records, records is one thing. But actually, you know, don't often end the show like this, actually, but it's almost going to, I'm left wondering where we are going and how we can change the industry. And, and, And that age-old mentality almost well, well so I'll, I'll circle back to who i am as the contract coach a little plug there but i'm going to say it <laughs> the, the, the records and all these things are great but unless they educate the people who run the businesses to understand who they are and why they started the business to not settle for uh rubbish terms to not settle for abuse then we're always going to have the same problem in my opinion anyway it's maybe another conversation for another day i don't know but you know i don't know I didn't. I didn't come on here today to to, to solve all the industry no, problems no, absolutely. in forty minutes. But you know, it's, it's quite a difficult question to answer because there's so many kind of parameters to it. But the reality is, education is one of the ways that we can get specialists to to understand what they need to do to run a better business. No, I 100% agree. And I will be sharing your details, the contract coaches' details in the podcast description. It's been fascinating chatting with you, and um, I thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Good to speak to you. Cheers, Paul. Have a good weekend. Cheers, mate. Take care. Bye. You too, bye.